welcome to the second annual Daily Monotony Film Awards! That's right, just like the Oscars, we arbitrarily pass off our opinions on films as definitive rankings, and just like the Golden Globes, we don't matter at all. I am your host, Dustin Anglin. And you don't have to be Stonewall Jackson to know you don't want to be podcasting from a dorm room. And I'm Scott. <laughs> and I do matter, and I'm Todd. Welcome. My, my, this is really my first participation in the annual awards here, and I'm, and I'm very proud and, and honored to be here. That's true. In fact, in fact, I think this might mark the uh, the second anniversary, or I guess the first anniversary of the Weekly Monotony podcast. Uh, as I believe our first podcast was the best films of 2008. Here we are again. Now we're doing the best films of 2009. Uh, each of us picked our top five. We're going to go through them, uh, but first, and, and I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time on that, so uh, as always in our podcast, we talk a little bit about what we've been watching in the past week between podcasts. Since it's been about a month or so, we have a lot to choose from. We're going to narrow it down, just pick one cool thing that we've seen, uh, preferably in the recent, recent weeks, and uh, talk about that. Scott, I think you had uh, something you wanted to tell us about. Yeah, well, everybody watches YouTube, and yes, everybody, um, everybody watches YouTube. <laughs> I've heard about it. I, I don't know. I've seen it. I've heard of this it. Mis- this mysterious tube you speak of. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> as I'm sure everybody knows, Hitler is the number one social commentator on all things, from the fact that Avatar sucks to the fact that Conan <laughs> is not as good as Jay Leno slash is worse than Jay Leno. And so, finally, uh, I wanted to go and pick up the genesis <laughs> of these videos. So that's the 2006 film by Olivia Hirschspiegel, Darren Thurgong, or in American we would say the downfall. The or downfall, Ian I Hitler. guess. Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so now my standardized response to any time somebody's like, that was a good movie, wasn't it? I'm like, mein Fjö. Uh, Steiner. Steiner. <laughs> Steiner. <laughs> but uh, I really can't recommend this film well quite strongly enough i think this is quite possibly my favorite world war ii movie ever interesting so you would you would, uh, i mean it's, it's, not, it's actually it's not really a war film but uh it's not at all it's very much sort of a biography and sort of and, a and, and even then, psychological portrait yeah, even then it's 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 very much a limited it's it's and i i agree with you i i saw this film as well and it's it's to to give the perspective it's a short it's a short period of time. In fact, it only takes case takes place during like the last, I think, four days of Hitler's life, during the the end of of his reign, the end of the Third Reich, right before Berlin was invaded, I think, by the Soviets. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really it's it's quite astonishing uh, to see the sort of psychology of Hitler in those last couple moments. Sort of ranging between seeming like a perfectly normal and caring person when he was just being himself. Almost to paraphrase one of the lines of dialogue in the film delivered by his girlfriend, um, and that when he's the fur, he's just a person, this sort of monstrous weirdo. So you know, this bizarre intersection of him ranting and raving about you know the global Jewish you know conspiracy. In the meantime, he's busy you know talking to his dog and being nice and eating vegetarian meals. Yeah, I so. mean, I've I've heard a lot of a lot of great commentary on this, and and one of the the best things I love about this movie is that it really does paint Adolf Hitler in a very human light, which is not something we see. In fact, we you know we see we see a lot of parodies of him as this sort of angry psychopath, and I think this film does a good job of really, you know, it still paints him as the crazy person and the you know really the the truly crazy. Uh, you know, psychotic things that he had in his brain, yet it also does paint him in a very 
almost likable human sense. Like, you can see that he was, he's a really, a real human being. Like, there's this one moment where I think one of his, one of his uh, top officers brings in his children and they're singing some song for him. And he look he looks almost like a, like a, a happy grandfather. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to put that human face on, you know, some, someone we consider to be one of those, you know, evil people of the 20th century. And uh, I, I think it does a great job of, of making you think about I, the I nature of I have to stop of, you because it's almost disturbingly flattering description. I mean, I, I clearly haven't seen the movie, but does this not sound like creating empathy for what is not arguably, no, no. is definitively one of the most evil tyrants no, of the last hundred here's, years? Here's what it does, and this is, where, this is where I think it really succeeds, is that it says, you know, look at this guy. This is not... This is not some crazy psychopath that you could see on the street and be like, wow, that man is crazy. This is a charismatic, charming person. And yet, from him came some of the most evil, unspeakable things of the 20th century. And that's, that's what I think it does. It says, you know, evil doesn't come from the clearly psychopathic man. It comes from incredibly charming, incredibly, you know, incredibly well, socially well-versed people. And that's the thing that I think this really paints the picture of. Is like, you know, you can't just say, well, well, you know, Hitler was a psychopath, and clearly we're never going to fall for another Hitler. It's like, no, Hitler was a really charming guy, <laughs> and that's the kind of people that those are the kind of people who can take over the world and do terrible things. <laughs> well, see, hmm. if you go and watch this film, it's not you don't come away thinking, wow, Hitler was a monster. The overwhelming monsters in this <laughs> film are Josef and Magda Goebbels, who hmm. were the. Uh, sort of close, the party which led up to Hitler coming into important power called the SO, um, which Dr. Goebbels was the head of. Um, they come away as the definite monsters in this film, and I don't really want to give away why, because it's one of the most shocking moments in the third act. But um, it, it's not Hitler you walk away from this film remembering as being monstrous. No, I agree. It's 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 really quite an intriguing film. And uh, I, think, I think I heard someone put it best, that, is that... You know, people love to hear that, you know, Hitler ordered the massacre of, of Jewish people, but people hate to hear that, you know, Hitler had a cat that he loved, you know, you know, he loved and adored. It's like no one wants to hear that a psycho person was, or a, this evil person had human qualities to him. But but he does, and I think it does. Well, arguably that your argument is a bit jaded in that it, it's it, you have to accept that despite the human characteristics that clearly existed, he was human, does not... Because it, it sounds like this movie, at least for from the way you're describing it, paints compassion. Oh no, and that, it totally, that totally exists does for not. somebody for did something as atrocious as he it did. It totally does not paint compassion on him. It 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 clearly paints him as the manipulative person that he was, and also you know paints him as the crazy person who could who could convince people that they were going to win the war even when they were clearly losing, and you know the Soviets were like bombing the 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 the, the uh, building right next to them. But hmm. but still, again, it puts the human face on evil, which is something that I think people, no one wants to believe that they're this human person that they chose to follow can turn out to be an evil person. I think that's I think if anything, this puts that warning on there, saying that you know the Germans were not a bunch of psychopaths for following Hitler; they were following a very charismatic man, who did terrible things. Cool. Uh, so Todd, I don't think you have anything to talk about, but I will talk about one film that I've seen recently that actually came out uh, came out actually the end of last year, but came out in a wider release just recently, and that is Terry Gilliam's new film, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. So if Terry Gilliam sounds familiar, he's done films like uh, Monty Python, The Holy Grail, Twelve Monkeys, Brazil, and most recently, The Brothers Grimm. Uh, he was actually a member of the Monty Python troupe, and he's responsible for all those you know crazy like 
cut out cartoon animations. Uh, and if you've heard of this, and film, really high voices. Yes, and 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 saying it's only a model. <laughs> but anyway, if you've heard of the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, it's it's because this is the last film that Heath Ledger did before uh, before he tragically died. Uh, and this is actually this is going to be the last film that stars his role. In fact, he actually died during the middle of shooting this film, which is why they had to tweak it a little bit to replace his character with some other actors who came in to, to uh, play his part. Uh, and if you've ever seen a Gillingham film like 12 Monkeys or like Brazil, you also know that Cary Gillingham's films are very wild and crazy and imaginative and, and very surreal in the fact that they, he likes to... He basically likes to take his, his cartoons that he did in Monty Python and turn them into film versions. So you can imagine that they're all very crazy. And this film is very much like that. Uh, and I, and generally, I, I enjoy his films because I really do think he's one of the most imaginative directors out there. And I think he has an amazing art style. And coming into this film, I really, really wanted to like it because I, you know, I want to support Terry Gilliam and the things he does. The problem is this, is this is probably one of the worst films I've seen in a long time. Mostly because it's it's almost unwatchable in that you can't understand a darn thing that's going on. Like, there is no respect paid for, like, a narrative thread in this film. And it almost feels like they had to cut out a bunch of scenes that would have explained what was going on in the story. And maybe that was because, you know, Heath Ledger had passed away and they couldn't come back and do reshoots. But just in general, it's so hard to understand. And, and by the time they get to the end, they explain what's going on. It's like, oh, how on earth was I supposed to understand this? Like, that makes absolutely no sense. And because of that, I just I just really couldn't stand this film. Uh, also, the the acting in general is pretty poor, and it's kind of sad that this is Heath Ledger's last performance because it is not not nearly his best. And I would I would love to have remembered uh, the Dark Knight and his role as the Joker as his last performance, but but uh, mm. unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. For those of us who are obsessed with numericism, yes. <laughs> but yeah, so as I can I can actually give say stay away from Imaginary of Doctor Parnassus is. It's just not worth seeing, unfortunately. Uh, but I even would... if you, even at the level of just seeing the the sort of the Heath Ledger finale, Absol- absolutely. I I think leave leave the last memory in your mind of Heath Ledger as his his role as the Joker. I I, I don't think this this film will leave a good taste in your mouth as as far as his performance or just the film in general. Now, I, just to as a very recap, his was replaced by a collection of actors, I believe, including Johnny Depp yep. and... Um, Johnny Depp, and, and Jude another... Law, and Colin Farrell come and replace him. And, and it makes sense in the story how they replace him. Uh, and actually, they actually all do a pretty good job. But again, Heath Ledger, you know, it's uh, partly I think the script was a little poor. Partly, I think they didn't get a chance to do uh, to do retakes and reshoots, so they had to take some some slightly worse performances. There was a lot of bad supporting acting in this this film that I think brought the rest of the, the film down in... Yeah, in the end, it's it's just too too loosely threaded to be enjoyable. Got it. Cool. Well, that's all we've been watching. Uh, usually at this point, we might talk a little bit about stuff we've been playing too, as we do every once in a while, talking about video games on this podcast and on my blog, uh, and maybe some movie news. But because we have a big feature to talk about, our top five films of 2009, we're going to go ahead and jump straight into that. Uh, so to set the, set the stage a little bit about you know what we consider top five films this is this is not what we consider at least this is not what what i consider when i put together my list what are the films that are going to win oscars or what have won awards already uh these are my favorite films my most entertaining films that uh that i saw this year in fact when i was going through my list one of the big things i thought about when i was coming together my list are you know what are the movies that 
I would definitely watch again. You know, what are the movies that I would go out and go out or, or have gone out and and uh, bought on DVD or Blu-ray? And uh, so the you know they're all all oftentimes there's really good films that come out around the Oscars that you're glad you've seen them once, but you probably wouldn't watch again. And I definitely you know while I acknowledge those are good films, uh, a lot of those sort of you know good Oscar films that you might see nominated didn't make my list specifically because like I said you know I. I enjoyed the film, I enjoyed the experience of it, but I just can't watch this film again because it's it's either too depressing or it's just it's just not interesting or entertaining enough. So, uh, what were what were some of the things that you guys used when you were putting together your lists? Same standard. I mean, I looked at all the movies that I'd seen throughout 2009, and I primarily tried to make my top five movies that I genuinely, as you said, enjoyed. And for the most part, it used the same standard of would I watch these again? And I did not look to for the critical standard or the, you know, the Rotten Tomato standard, any sort of standard you'd use that's outside of did I enjoy it and would I see it again? And to some degree, I tried to weigh into that. Was it new? Was it refreshing? You know, what, was it just something I've seen before and enjoyed seeing again? And if it was something that uh, was something I'd not seen before, took a little bit of a unique approach, that gave a little bit of a bonus point for me. Scott, do you have have any other? I assume you probably did something very similar, but do you have any any other criteria you use when picking your top five? Yeah, I mean, for me, the greatest films of the year are inherently unforgettable. And so, as soon as you ask me what they are, maybe they don't come up in the order I'm going to present them in. But pretty quick, they just sort of spill out, and it's not like you can forget some of the films we've had this year in any short quantity of time. Um, if if you really took them with any degree of seriousness when they were first presented for you. And I mean, then there are other movies where I had to go back and think about it and start looking up lists and stuff like that, but ultimately those weren't the ones that ended up at the top. Sure. You know, so you know, for me, they really stand out. I mean, that's actually a good point. When you know, when I put together my list, I actually, the first thing I did is I got a piece of paper, started writing down all the movies I could think of in 2009. And you know, surprisingly enough, I think you know, within probably the first seven films that I wrote down, that's where my top five were. So it's kind of, you know, you know, the, the top of mind, top of heart sort of thing. Makes sense. Cool stuff. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started with our top five movies of 2009. And that does mean they had to come out in 2009, not films that came out like, like late 2008, uh, or not films that came out in the past few weeks. But anyway, let's get started. <laughs> Number five, and we're going to start with Scott, and then we're going to go to Todd, then we're going to go to myself. I'm going to keep on going around until we make it all the way up to number one. Scott, what is your number five movie of 2009? For innovations in storytelling style, for <laughs> cinematographic innovation, and for keen and unsubtle social commentary, I award my number five position to Mr. Neil Blokamp's film, District 9. Okay, now you see, this, this is a problem. This is a gang sign. You see this? Ah, uh, you hear that? Yeah, it's all over there. See, look at that. <laughs> look at that. I haven't seen this type of setup. It's almost like a chemistry type of a set. There's gonna be some. What is this cock? What is this? Yeah, I don't know. This has got the markings there of, of uh, so it, it's definitely alien, but it's uh, not a weapon. But I don't trust it, you know, I don't trust anything that... <laughs> you're right, bro. Because you're right, eh? 
Very wise choice. Why why District 9? Um, you know, there, we had a couple of good pieces of science fiction this past year. The three that jumped to mind are District 9, Star Trek, and Moon. True, true. And all those are excellent films, and all of them were really, really bucking for position number five on my list. And the reason I ultimately went with District 9 is because this is a completely unignorable film. It's just incorrigible. If you watch this film, you're going to feel very strongly about it. I heard some people who said they thought it was terrible, who said they walked out of the theater. <laughs> Actually, I think I was I was there with you when I heard that. There's yeah, pr- yeah, especially yeah, yeah, enough maybe. comic book store owners. So, go Right, out. yeah, that's absolutely the case that I'm thinking of. Although some other people would express to some, they didn't walk out, but they said, you know, how much they were, you know, hated this film. Sure. And, and, and a film that provokes strong reactions from people, especially if it can really divide people, is a film that's saying something just like a Michael Moore commentary. You know, these are films which you, you just can't ignore them. They get in your way. You have to go through them. You can't go around them or above them or below them. District 9, for me, there's two reasons that I like this film. Or, I mean, I guess sort of three that I alluded to. Technically, it's brilliant. I like what he does in terms of his camera work. I, As much as he likes to cut in, you know, like security footage and interview stuff, it's a little cheeky for me. But I can live with it, especially when he's in a more traditional narrative type stuff. I really like how he puts the camera places, how he moves the camera, how he lenses things. In terms of how the story is told, it's not a traditional sort of three-act narrative. I mean, you could break it down that way, but it doesn't really flow out that way. It feels more sort of like a uh, sort of like a continuous line to an epiphany, um, sort of without a whole lot of rises and falls, but just sort of like a breathing organ growing. And then lastly, the social commentary, the political commentary in this film, it's completely unignorable. You have to be, you know, my apologies to anybody who didn't get it, but you have to be adult not to get it. (laughs) Even if you don't know anything about what this film is obviously referring to, and that is apartheid. And what this film really does is it talks about our ability to humanize the inhuman and to dehumanize the human. And that's exactly what this film does. We see these things which are basically just stand-ins for other people, these aliens, metaphorically speaking, and how people can, A, completely, you know, dehumanize them, and then, B, how these people will then sort of become exactly what it is that they refuse to acknowledge. Um, So it's a really great, it's not quite what I would call a circular structure, but it's a really great sort of inversion um, of perspective, which really makes his political commentary end up striking home, in my opinion. And that is why I think the film is so effective on that level. Sure. No, I, I totally agree. Disc 9 is, I mean, it's it's hard to deny. It's, it's one of the best films of the year. Uh, uh, surprisingly enough, just from a, a cinematic style of, you know, Neil Blomkamp, a lot of his early films and short films have gone for this sort of mock documentary style and trying to insert computer graphics into the real world and kind of trying to blend those two things. So, you know, this looks like coverage from CNN and yet there's there's clearly something that, you know, confounds the senses in it, like, you know, an alien spaceship or this alien mech suit or the, or these, you know, these crazy-looking prawn aliens. Uh, and, and I have to say, like, as much as, say, you know, Michael Mann, I think, has gone for that style of almost documentary style, like, if you think of Public Enemies, which was another film that came out this year, which is shot on DV, shot shot almost to feel, I think, a little bit documentary style and documentary-like. Like, everything I think Michael Mann has tried to do, and you know, he's been working at this, you know, all his life with that style. I think District 9 accomplished, and, you know, like, ten times better. And this is Neil, Neil Blomkamp's first major feature film. So I think, 
I mean, just acknowledging the achievement that Neil Blomkamp has come out of, you know, a no-name actor with a, essentially a no-name property coming out, having a, you know, a successful film both critically and, and financially. I think I mean, it's hard to not be, be moved by or be stunned by that kind of uh, achievement in, film, in filmmaking. And I mean, he, uh, District 9 was shot entirely on the red 4K. Um, so, you know, you know, Michael Mann, you can dance up and down, but here's a guy, <laughs> in my opinion, doing it with less problems yeah, than you do absolutely. on its first shot. I know, so. which is, 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 you know, stunning. And also, I mean, I don't think you can talk about District 9 without talking about uh, the amazing, amazing performance by Charlotte Copley, who was, you know, not an actor by training and just, you know, was a friend of Neil Blomkamp. He got him to come on and be an actor in this film. And in the fact, you know, you know, I actually own the Blu-ray of this now, and I watched some of the the makings of. And I didn't realize this, but most of this film is completely ad-libbed. It's all improvised. They actually put Charlotte Copley out there. They said, "Well, this is kind of what's going on. You know, do something." And almost the entire film is just completely improvised dialogue. And it's it's amazing that one man can can pull the emotions and pull you and know these... scriptwriters everywhere cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I mean, think about you know how how crazy this is. A first time director says, "I want to make this this weird you know social commentary documentary style film," and then I want to pull in this actor who's never acted before, and I want him to improvise all the lines in the movie. It's, I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible. Uh, Todd, do you have have any any uh, any commentary on District Nine? Only that it didn't make my top five, but it was in my collection of evaluations for, let's say, top ten. So it was good, but I, I think if I was applying my standard I said I was going to apply, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very unique. I can't take that away from it, but it's not a movie that I'd likely go back and watch again. Sure. At least not often. It was, it was one of those things where you kind of walked away from it saying, wow, that was different. Go watch it again, or at least not regularly. It, so it, for me, fair, that's the only thing that kept it out of my top five. To be fair, I do think one of the, you know, one of the the, the detractors from this film is that it is a little gory and a little over gory to an extent that I think I think pulls away from the film rather than adding to the story. Uh, I, you know, watching it this the second time, I think I noticed it more than watching it the first time in theaters. Uh, but it does at a certain point, like almost almost make you wonder, like, really, is that? We need to see another guy explode and see like the bits of his of his body splash on the camera. It's, uh, so, so I would say it goes a little overboard in that sense, and that does detract a bit from the film. And I think detract from the rewatchability, which is an unfortunate thing. I think yeah. basically we just more need to add. It... Go, ahead. Go ahead, Scott. Okay, well, I was going to say had it been more rewatchable, it would have been. It, that's all it would have taken for it to be in my top five. I mean, it really was close. And it's when I. It was a borderline one for me, but that sort of over the edge stuff just pushed it a little bit past being rewatchable enough to be a top five for me. So, I mean, I'll give it credit. Definitely a great movie of the year, just just not one of my top Totally five. fair. Just when you rewatch it, have a couple beers, be hanging out with some friends who are, you know, video game nerds, and every time there's excessive violence, have your friend with the lowest voice go, like, double kill. <laughs> that might improve things. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, so, moving on. Todd, what was your number five film of 2009? Number five was a hard pick. I'll be honest. Probably the hardest pick because there's that. That is the borderline that yep. cuts off what what falls below <laughs> this. Absolutely. Uh, so I I traded out the number five slot probably more than any other slot in my list. And what ended up coming in at number five for me is Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. Quentin Tarantino's uh, very odd film starring Brad Pitt. An American Secret Service outfit that lives deep behind enemy lines will be your assist. The Germans call them the bastards. The bastards. 
Never heard of them. Jerry's have heard of them. Because these Yanks have been there with the devil. You'll be dropped into France, about 24 kilometers outside of Paris. The bastards will be waiting for you. How will I know her? I suspect that won't be too much trouble for you. And I will say that this film came in number five for me almost entirely on the performance of Christoph Waltz, who played Colonel Hans Landa, or pretty much the, the main German officer we see throughout the movie who's uh, basically hunting down the, the, um, the American Nazi killers. So it ends out for me for its sort of over-the-top kind of approach to this era of movie. And kind of you would expect that from director. But I enjoy Brad Pitt's performance. I ex- obviously extremely enjoyed Christoph Waltz's performance, somebody who I'd never really seen before this. Uh, and for that, it stands out for me. And I agree, it, it almost doesn't meet my criteria of being rewatchable. But, you know, it's just one of those ones that draws you in. It's just kind of like almost watching a train wreck draws you in because <laughs> of some of the extremeness of it. Right. Uh, and, and as such, it slips right into my, my top five. I mean, definitely. I I mean, I think there there's tons you could talk about in Glorious Bastards. Uh, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino has been, I think, a hit or miss director. And I think he's always been trying to make a film that fit his style. And, I mean, you can see see his work in Pulp Fiction or see his work in... Uh, uh, what was what was his most recent films? Uh, uh, Kill Bill and Kill Bill Volume Two. It, it, like you could see him going for something. And I really feel like when he did when he wrote Inglorious Bastards, he was like, "Yes, this is it. This is the film I was born to make." And uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it has all the tropes of Tarantino in there, both the good and the bad. Uh, you know, great dialogue, but you know, a penchant for holding out a scene way longer than it ever should be, and just you know, not cutting it down. I think I think the longest uh, scene in this film is actually 30 minutes long, which, from an editor standpoint, is psychotic. Uh, but yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, what can you say? Uh, very, definitely a great film. Cool stuff. All right. Well, I will move on to my five, and I have a feeling this will probably be on on uh, on Todd at least yours list. I don't, Scott, I don't think it's on your list, but uh, this this one, uh, you know, I had a hard time with this particular film, just as you did. I had a lot of I had tons of films vying this, for this position, probably. Probably five different films, and I actually rewatched all those films, and actually rewatched one of them twice just to try to figure out, you know, which one really deserves this slot. Uh, but in in the end, I went with my heart, and I went with the one that I think I find to be probably one of the most watchable films of the year, and I think a film that I will probably rewatch more than any other on my list, though it has enough problems that it couldn't make it higher. And that film is J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Who are you? I'm with him. He's with me. We are traveling at warp speed. How did you manage to beam aboard this ship? You're the genius. You figure it out. As acting captain of this vessel, I order you to answer the question. Well, I'm not telling, acting captain. What did... Well, no, that doesn't frustrate you, does it? My lack of cooperation. That that doesn't make you angry. Are you a member of Starfleet? I, um... Yes. Can I get a towel? Under penalty of court-martial, I order you to explain to me how you were able to beam aboard this ship while moving at warp. Well, don't answer him. You will answer me. Uh, interesting. I mean, clear, clearly this, in fact, it's, it's kind of interesting. If you go back over to the summer, uh, this was my number one film of the summer. Easily, easily my number one film of the summer. Uh, but I think over time, it, it sort of degraded in, in my opinion. And I, I got it on Blu-ray. I watched it again. And I have to admit, the first act of this film is almost almost too perfect for words. It's the opening that just, you know, 
the visual sense that J.J. Abrams manages to pull, the, the overexposed bright lights, uh, these beautiful shots of, of space and these ships battling in it, plus just the, you know, the intensity of the actors, the, the wonderful performances, especially in their introductory moments of Chris Pine and, and Zachary Quinto and Carl Urban, just perfect on the spot. Uh, that said, as the film goes on, you know, as much as as much as I just have fun with this film, there's just so many points in this film that kind of bring me out of the movie as just being, you know, a other ridiculous or just being huge logic holes or or just just being a little a little stupid script wise. Uh, that that I couldn't make it a bit higher on my film, and that's actually what brought it down from it it being my number one film from the summer. Is that I? It's just there are too many points where I was drawn out of the movie. I just being like, really, why would you do? Oh well, yeah, and. I'm, I'm out of the movie. I'm out of the experience, and that's and that's that's an unfortunate thing. Though, like I said, eminently watchable. I will watch this film over and over again, and still have a blast with it. Interesting. Well, I, I think if you allow me, I will save my comments for this film because <laughs> uh, I, I think I would I would tip my hand if I commented at this point. But I, I will definitely provide some some opposing opinion on Star Trek momentarily. I believe that that is absolutely fair. Uh, Scott and... Yeah, I mean, I'll, I really like this film. Um, but for me, it's very much like a, you know, a soft drink. Um, it's bubbly, it's tasty, it's sweet. But, you know, if you want a hearty meal, there's not enough there. You're going to have to pair it with something else. I guess, but I mean, to be fair, like, every time I watch the opening of this of this film, like the opening sequence, uh, where, spoilers for the opening of Star Trek, uh, uh Kirk's father dies in sort of this, you know, heroic, tragic, I'm going to, you know, kill myself to save my family. I, I get teared up during that. Like, I feel like there's there's genuine emotion there. And, you know, just the way the score works together, the way the, the actors pull off that sequence, it's it's moving for me. It's touching. Like, that's, not many films do that. So, I you know, I have to say, there's, I feel like there's more than just, than just you know, popcorn and uh, cotton candy in this film. But again, there, to me, there are too many points that that I just can't, I can't, just don't mesh logically, and uh, a couple plot points that I think are a little weak. But uh, but again, absolutely great film, one of the best films of the year. And interestingly enough, I think a film that appeals probably of all the films on my list, probably the most of all to a broad audience. Like my parents saw this film and they loved it. Like this is not a film I would expect my parents to love, but they they just had a blast with it. And so I mean, definitely, I think it's probably. The, the most broad appeal film of the year. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's a good observation, too. All right. What's well, number five? Let's move on to number four. Scott, what is your number four movie of 2009? <laughs> for consistent excellence in acting, for a piercing look at the lifestyle of 2000 to 2010. And for a thorough salute to traditional filmmaking is Jason Reitman's Up in the Air. Up in the Air, which I believe you just came back from. <laughs> That's absolutely... <laughs> the, uh, the, the ticket stub is still sitting in my pocket. Know me is to fly with me. This is where I live. When I 
run my card, the system automatically prompts the desk clerk to greet me with this exact statement. Pleasure to see you again, Mr. Bingham. It's these kinds of systemized, friendly touches that keep my world in orbit. So why up in the air? Um, it seems like every year now, for about the last four or five years, George Clooney, once a year, has been in a really, really solidly, traditionally made good film. Or at least reasonably okay film. The ones that are jumping to mind are Burn After Reading, Syriana, uh, Good Night and Good Luck, and Michael, Michael Clayton. Clayton. <laughs> Michael Clayton obviously being the most superior of all of the above, yes. and your mileage may vary on the rest of them as well. Um, but this seemed to be the, the the good Michael Clayton movie of the year after you know Men Who Stare at Goats is being like the the burn after reading Michael Clayton or burn after reading George Clooney movie of the year. Um, a, a lot of people think this is the best film of the year. If you go and read other critics, or at least the best American film of the year. I don't know if I'm going to go that far. But what I do like is the fact that it, it does things very traditionally, um, very solidly in in a way that you know, drama film used to be made. About the post postmodern now, the 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 neo modernism that we're currently sitting in, the sort of lifestyle of two thousand and ten, if you will. And that juxtaposition is what sells this film for me, is the fact that it's very traditional storytelling about a I mean, what kind of story is this film? It's about a guy who flies around firing people yep. and is somehow happy with all of that. Or or is he? So you think, and then there's a quasi-epiphany in the middle of the film that he's not, and then it's just back into the pretending things. It's 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 a great look at at modern modern pursuit of meaning in the fact that it seems like meaning today comes just as easily from ignoring that pursuit as it does from actually pursuing it. But that's for you to sort of chew on as you've seen the film. So. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I won't get too too ahead of myself. Yeah, I mean, Jason Reitman, uh, he's done some, you know, he's he's a still pretty young director, but he's done some great work in the past. Uh, he was nominated for Juno uh, for best director, and I think also best picture. Uh, and he's also done film the film uh, Thank You for Smoking, which is uh, an excellent film if you haven't seen it. Excellent. Yes. Uh, yeah, up in the air. What a really. Uh, no, I think I think you nailed it. It really is. I think a practice in excellent traditional filmmaking. I mean, this takes you know. The common tropes of great editing, great acting, you know, this sort of dramedy mix of, of light, fun comedy, quick snappy dialogue, and, you know, serious thought-provoking drama as well, uh, just, I think, perfectly interplayed and matched uh, in this film. George Clooney is, I think, the coolest guy in film, like, as much as he is pretentious beyond... And smug. Yeah, and <laughs> smug beyond, beyond uh, all reason... He's just he's he's a treat to watch on screen, and he plays he fits this role so so perfectly. I almost feel like this is this role was written to be just George Clooney and not some some other person. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's 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 wonderful. It you know it makes you question question the sort of motives of the film in multiple ways and kind of throws you for a loop. You know, in, at the end of the film, it's. Uh, it doesn't have a traditional ending, which which is you know just you know I think it's absolutely perfect. This is this is a perfect example of a of a great I think approachable piece of literature done in film form. Uh, yeah, and I, I could I could recommend this film to to just about anyone. It's really everything the informant could have been and wasn't. I would say in comparing it to the informant is a travesty. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Todd, have you have you seen Up in the Air? I have not. It makes my my otherwise known as list of 2009 misses, and I have a number of films that I've listed into my films that I would actually care to see. And Up in the Air definitely makes that list, so I cannot cast my vote on that film. I mean, I mean, the great thing about this is, I think now you know. I heard I heard someone make a great commentary on it that they're in the, the three kinds of films. There are ones that are just pure entertainment, ones which almost feel like they're pure message, and then ones which are entertainment and yet they still have you know message to them. And this is an example of one of those films. Like this this film is wonderfully entertaining. It's though it has a great message to it. So I think I think it really is the case of you get you know, you get a little bit of medicine with the ice cream, but it's it but all works together incredibly well. And I I feel like you don't have to be a film buff to see this film. So don't be don't be thrown away like if this film gets Oscar nominations or you know, this is considered like, you know, the independent film of the year. This is a eminently approachable film. <laughs> Very cool. Cool stuff. Alright, Todd, what is what is your number four film of the year? My number four simply removes three of the words from Scott's number four <laughs> and arrives at up. <laughs> hey, I like dog. We have your dog! Whoa. Wonder who he belongs to. Sit boy. Hey look, he's trained. Shake. Uh-huh. Speak. Hi there. <gasps> Did that dog just say hi there? Oh, yes. Bruh! My name is Doug. I have just met you, and I love you. <laughs> My master made me this collar. He is a good and smart master, and he made me this collar so that I may talk. Squirrel! My master is good and smart. It's not possible. Oh, it is because my master is smart. <gasps> cool. What do these do, boy? Hey, would you call that cradle contigo? I use that collar. Watashiwa Hanashima. To talk with, I would be happy if you stop. Up is one that I almost didn't include in my top five, so I'm a little surprised at the end of the day it made my number four spot. Uh, how f simply for its ability as an animated film to impact emotionally the experience of watching a movie, this, this had to be in the top top five I, I really wanted to exclude it because frankly in the scope of animated pixar features it really doesn't feel like my one of my favorites just by the story and some of the characters i've enjoyed other pixar characters much more than than the up characters but i don't know that any pixar film has been as uh emotionally touching especially in the, the intro to the movie as up achieved and so for that alone uh, that achievement as an animated film, it, it had to make one of my top four for 2009, and certainly it'd be a movie I'd watch again. So it fit my criteria, it was entertaining, and for an animated film, an achievement in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I still could not watch the opening sequence of this film without bawling. Like, I, I'm, a, I'm a guy, I get choked up, I usually don't cry, I cry in this film. Like, there are tears flowing down my face, and and it's it's wonderfully cathartic. And anytime I'm feeling stressed, I just watch up, and then I feel better. <laughs> And they managed to do it within, like, the first 10 or 15 minutes. So, I mean, it's not like they needed an hour-long movie to get you to that point of feeling the attachment to the characters, that you felt sad, you know, when something happened. I mean, they achieved that in 10, 20 minutes at the first part of the movie, which most movies never fail – or, I mean, never manage to achieve with real people. So, I mean, it's just huge credit to the animators for what they conveyed, the, the writers for the story they came up with. I mean, again, I'm just very impressed what they did. And you just, for as much as you've enjoyed and been entertained by past Pixar films, I don't think any managed to touch a nerve quite like Up did. Uh, and I think lots of other people agreed. Clearly, it's a very popular movie throughout 2009. I, I think also it managed in the process to become one of the top grossing films of 2009, which I was happy to see a good film actually in some of the top grossing uh, 
collection. So that also, for me, helps boost the, the sort of credibility of this film in, in the past year. And certainly one I'd recommend to anybody who hasn't seen it or one that I'd recommend people see again if they did. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a Pixar... I, this is this is a film, you know, it's a film by Pete Docter. Uh, he has done, uh, I believe he did Monsters Incorporated before this. Uh, and, and, and you can go back and listen to our up review, and I, I believe I stated all this before, but I was really worried about this film because I thought it was going to be a little kid-friendly. Like, I thought, you know, like Monsters, Inc., I thought it was going to be a little too much, you know, airing towards that younger audience and sort of shooting for a bit lower of a, lower common denominator than usual Especially since I think the you know the previous films before this, both uh, Ratatouille and and uh, Wall-E, were just you know so perfectly made that you know I, I thought you know surely this film is going to have to disappoint on some level, and yet it didn't at all. In fact, I think it I think it surpassed just about everyone's expectations. Uh, I'm I will say it did not make my list mostly because I feel like this film has pretty serious sort of second and third act problems. Like once you get once they get to the uh, the sort of uh, Amazon location or, or to the, the South American uh, area and it becomes more of an adventure story and less of this sort of personal story I feel I feel it loses something a little bit uh, especially because the the entire purpose of this film is they're trying to say you know the adventure is not the things you do it's the things the people you do it with and I think in some case they, they spend a little it's unfortunate that I, I think that the actual adventure itself is, is, is a little uh underwhelming in the end uh yeah i'd agree when you get past the opening act it's a little anticlimactic uh when you get to the, the rest of it to some degree it's it's refreshing considering how emotional the first act oh, sure. is like you kind of need <laughs> that to lighten the mood a bit and just feel like okay i can i can relax and watch the rest of this movie uh but i do agree and i think that's why i say in the scope of pixar movies this definitely doesn't make my top 10 well i guess it makes my top 10 that, but it doesn't I mean, make my I mean... perhaps top three <laughs> favorite pixar movies i mean there's not a whole lot of them to pick from sure but, you know, again, for 2009, an animated film, it's a serious standout achievement. I remember still clearly how impactful that, that opening sequence was. And for that alone, and given what else I had to choose, it makes my yeah at the number four slot. I agree. And, and, and as just, just another, another brief note before we move on, uh, uh, the, the score by Michael Giacchino, who also did the score for tar- Star Trek, ironically, uh, I'm absolutely in love with that score. Like, I... I, I bought it on iTunes as soon as I got back from the film, and I listen to it. I listen to it often now. It's it's really I think a uh, one of one of the best works that Michael Giacchino's done. And I actually hope that it. I think it won uh, best score. It at, did receive a globe. at the Golden Globes, and I I, I really hope it wins the Oscar because I think it is it's uh, absolutely stunning. Cool. Cool stuff. All right, all right. We'll move on to my number four, and my number four is actually one that's already been mentioned, and that's uh, uh, Neil Blomkamp's District Nine again. I could talk wonders about this film. Uh, I this would have been higher for me, I think, because you know I, you know I, I really did love this film. But I do agree with you, Todd, that it is it is a little bit less watchable than I think the other films on my list, simply because it is a little a little overly gory. And I also like I, I think I mentioned this in our review. I have a little bit of trouble with how many you know weird camera angles that get put in of like security camera footage and stuff like that. And as much as I appreciate what Blomkamp was going for, I don't feel like any of those sequences were necessary or any of those film shots were necessary. And I think they, in that sense, they kind of distract a bit from the storytelling, but, but uh, yeah, a, a brilliant film. Uh, one of the best of the year. Uh, I, I really, really look forward to what Neil Blomkamp does next. And I hope, I hope he gets a, you know, a, a bigger budget and a chance to do something, uh, a chance to do something unique too. Cause I, I'd love to see him, come up with new uh, new properties and do something cool. 
Sure. Yeah, that was probably, I mean, again, District 9 is probably my number seven. So, not a bad film. Yeah. <laughs> 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 nice there, you know, number seven. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's 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 the fours. Let's move on to to three. Now we're now we're getting to the top three territory. Scott, what was your number three film of two thousand nine? For an unflinchingly neutral look at a a flinchingly polarized subject, for a perfect psychological portrait of people who should be completely psychopathical, and. <laughs> For what is probably the best film ever made about soldiering, it's Kate Bigelow's *The Hurt Locker*. Samuel, I got the suit. Just go. Hey, Samuel, you have 45 Look, seconds. You have 45 seconds, Samuel. So, damn man, <laughs> Will, go. Go. go! Everybody, get back! Go, go, go! go. go. There's too many locks. There's too many. I can't do it. I do. I can't get it off. I'm sorry, okay? You understand? I'm sorry. You hear me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Get down! We're still trying to figure out exactly what the locker is and why it's hurt or why there is hurt in it. So interesting enough, I actually listened to uh, in this great podcast. I'd recommend the creative screenwriting magazine blog, or podcast and they had the writer on from this film and he actually mentioned that the Hurt Locker stands for a term that uh, that is used by military people to say when when you're in the radius of a bomb that you know that could explode then you're in the Hurt Locker even though they never say it in the film <laughs> I see though, though, outside th- information <laughs> though I think I think he said that it was in a film but it, or is in a sequence of the film that got cut but that's why it's called the Hurt Locker in case you're wondering <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's if you are in the screening room and able to hear what is going on in this film and you watch it, you're also in the Hurt Locker as far as awesome cinema is concerned because it's, I mean, to say that all the movies that have been made about Iraq in the past have been shitty is a serious understatement. (laughs) Um, And then this film comes along and it's just so incredibly and implausibly fantastic. and you know, it's not even an American film. I imagine it was made on a shoestring. Um, no, no, it's, it's it's definitely an American film. I mean, Catherine. Are you sure? Catherine Bigelow is a uh, a very she, big American, American director. But I, I believe this was financed by European producers. Uh, it might have been. I don't know. But I know all I know oh. is that Catherine Bigelow is, is definitely a huge American director. She did K nineteen, The Widowmaker. She did a Point Break back in the in the eighties uh, or nineties. Right. Right, no, no, Kate, Kate Bigelow is definitely an American, but I, I don't believe that money for this film came out of, or at least very much of it came it, out of the it, States. Possible. And I mean, very little of it was shot here. In fact, I'm not even sure it, if any of it was it, shot. It here. was shot, shot in Jordan. Right. Um, but, but, but I mean, that's it. Uh, you know, this, this is a film about people who, you know, arguably are crazy, um, but come across as being very realistic in this film. Um, great little trio of sort of principal characters and how they get to interact with each other and the different levels of soldier that they are and how they behave when they are soldiering. Um, absolutely stunning. I cannot forget this film. It is ever since I stepped out of that theater that I saw it in, every time I've driven back there, I remember the Hurt Locker just because it was so completely earth shattering. 
Sure. I mean, I, I think this is probably one of the most intense films I've ever watched. And that said, there isn't a whole lot of action in this film. In fact, there are very few sequences of, of traditional action. But, I mean, combining the concept of, you know, disarming bombs and then putting that in the context of the Iraq War, which I think this film paints that context better than any film has ever done, this idea of you're in the middle, you know, in a street in the middle of these of these houses, which are just full of balconies with people coming out and watching you and, you know, sort of, you know, shadily going back in and out of their windows, holding up cell phones, which could be, a you know, a detonator device. It's 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 almost it's almost so intense to the point that it's like painful to watch this film. But uh, now I absolutely agree. This is a, a, a stunning work. And, and what a great return for Catherine Bigelow. I mean, she hasn't done a film, I think, since K-19. And that was almost 10 years ago. And uh, and then she just comes out of nowhere with this absolutely spectacular uh, uh, action film. And which, which you know, I actually think it's it's not fair to say that this film is not political, uh, because it really is a political message. But the way they present it is not the way like all these other, you know, classic Hollywood trope Iraq film wars are. They they present it in the way of you know, here's people in just a really crazy situation, and here's here's the sort of thing that you can get addicted to this concept of the adrenaline rush of war, almost to the point where you can't live a normal life. I think they they just. They do that wonderfully and subtly, and yet they, I think they still get their point across that, man, war really sucks. Todd, did you see The Hurt Locker? I actually didn't get to The Hurt Locker. You guys spoke highly of it last time it came up, so it's it's another one of those ones that makes my misses. Um, there's some fairly uh, big movies in my misses. I won't deny that. Uh, as, as it is, I'm sure for a lot of people, there's so many movies that come out in 2009. I mean, if you review that list of 2009 movies, it's even wide releases alone, it's quite a massive list. So it's one that I think will be on my short list of things to watch on a plane ride in 2010, because you guys have given it such high marks, but does not, again, get included in my votes for 2009. No, I think it's fair. I mean, it's unfortunate that this film came out in such a limited release because I, I really think this is going to be a film that you know might get nominated for an Oscar, and a lot of people will say, "Well, what the heck is this film? I never, never heard of this. The Hurt Locker? What is that?" Uh, yeah, and it's unfortunate because you know it's it's a it's a great suspenseful film, fantastic performance by Jeremy Renner. Uh, I think the best thing that he's done yet. I hope he gets some kind of nod for for the stuff he's done. One thing I will say, and this and this uh, you might. Might find a little disheartening, Scott, but this did not make my top five films, and this this is why. Uh, again, when I looked over, really, you know, trying to come up with my criteria for top five, you know, one of them was rewatchability, and I actually did go and rewatch The Hurt Locker uh, in preparation for this, and the second time through, I found that like a lot of the tension and a lot of the a lot of things that made this film so incredibly exciting just weren't there because I knew what was going to happen and unfortunately I think that really cuts down on the re- the rewatchability and you almost it almost the the sense of oppression and the drama of the film becomes a little too heavy for me to the point where I'd say I probably wouldn't rewatch this film you know I I would see it again but I probably wouldn't rewatch it that often and so I just couldn't put it in my top 5 but this was definitely like hanging out right there in in number six territory, along with a bunch of other great films, so still, still a huge recommend. You should see this film. It's out. It's out for rent now. Uh, it's out for, out for purchase. I'm sure it'll be in theaters again uh, when sort of the Oscar nominees return to theaters. So definitely see it. Well, that moves on to Mr. Todd Anglin. What is your number three film of the year? My number three film comes as I am sure will be to you something of a surprise. Yeah. Um, 
did not expect this to be in my top five. Hmm. And this choice not only reflects um, a movie that meets my criteria, but I also think it's a choice that highlights for me what is almost one of the central themes of movies in 2009. Hmm. Uh, the number three slot on my list goes to James Cameron's Avatar. exceeded all records for <laughs> box office, in, which were previously held by James Cameron's Titanic. Uh, no, uh, not not yet, but will. No? Oh, oh right. Oh, so it's 1.6 so billion yeah, in so, Titanic, so, 1.8. So, so like because, uh, because I'm this, the, the, the film nerd here, I will give you the breakdown. Right now, it has been the fastest film to make $500 million, surpassing The Dark Knight. It's currently at $504 million domestic, uh, $1.132 billion dollars in foreign box office and a total of 1.637 billion dollars total in in a matter i think of 32 days it's the fastest film to that number the, I, I think I, I tweeted this it's not a question of is it going to pass titanic it's when it's going to pass titanic and by how much uh yeah absolutely phenomenal success for right. james cameron <laughs> So, so no question, his bet he bet big and and won big. I mean, if he was a Vegas gambler, you know, he'd be the the high roller right now. Uh, so, so major credit to him. And I I went into this movie as as I don't know if we talked about it in this podcast, but certainly you and I talked about this. A major skeptic. I mean, this movie yes, yes. I was looking for every reason to hate it. Uh, and at the end of the day, I walked away not loving the story, but you cannot take away from A, his technical achievement with his movie. He has definitely set the bar, or reset the bar, let's say, for what you'd realistic animated performances in a movie. That much I will agree with. And B, you know, this is the one movie where I'd actually encourage other people to go see and take people to go see. I mean, this is one of those ones I'd actually go back and bring people with me to come see it because it's just that kind of visually impressive and that unique, which fits my criteria of rewatchability, entertainment, you know, and if you're willing to bring your, your friends to it and put sort of your credibility behind taking people to it, that speaks volumes, I think, for what he achieved. And I think that clearly is how he's managed to take this film to $1.6 billion in that period of time because apparently every other human being on earth has done the same thing so uh and that for that it makes my list and the other reason it makes my list and as i said the reason i think this represents one of the central themes of movies in 2009 is that this movie was done in 3d and i think just yep. as much as 2008 was sort of the year of hd for tv where hd kind of became the, the standard the norm everything was in hd 
2009 seemed to me to be almost the year of 3D for movies. Which, it as a note, like... was my number one trend of film trend of 2009, if you well, read yeah. the Daily so, Monotony blog. <laughs> found at dailymonotony.com. Yes. So <laughs> there's no question that for me, you know, 3D was the trend of 2009. You saw that in all kinds of movies, but Avatar was one of the first that I actually saw and actually got to experience that in theaters. Clearly, I, I got to see it late in the year. And it lived up to some of its its hype. I mean, that on top of the hype of the movie, it really did enhance the experience. And I can't. I almost cringe to ex, to wonder what the experience is going to be like once it comes, you know, to that's, the house that's where a you fair don't point. have that three D. Um, and and that may be a bit of a detractor. But for now, as long as it's in theaters and it looks like, for all intents and purposes, it'll be there a while longer since <laughs> it's a big cash cow. Um, it's a great movie that is visually visually entertaining, visually spectacular. Again, I'm not giving any credit to the story but visually spectacular. Yeah, I mean, I, I will I will speak a bit more about Avatar in, in a second, but uh, Scott, I, I get the feeling that you didn't like Avatar as much after we saw it. Uh, what, what, were your, what were your thoughts on Avatar? I mean, it, when we're done listing our top five, you can go back and dig through all of mine, and as best as I can defend them, I'll say that all of my top five films, and probably if I could get away with it, all of my top ten films of the year would be those which I think have a spectacular story that is well delivered. And it, no matter how much of a spectacle Cameron is able to make Avatar into, is if there's not a story there, I cannot give it top honors. It's a matter of personal directive, so to speak. So, so do you... um, I'll salute Avatar for being a lot of things, but a good story does not. So do you think that... Are you, are you saying that you don't think Avatar has a story? No, it, it does have a story. I, I don't think that the I don't think that the plot is character driven, and I don't think that the characters that are there are in any way, shape, or form round, dynamic, or interesting. Hmm. Well, that, um... and, and I will say though, just just you know, with with due respect, <laughs> and uh, and just to provide a counter to that is that stories are certainly important. There's a lot of great movies made with great stories, but at some level. You know, we have great other we have other great media or medium for stories. You know, books tell great stories, and the only medium where we can get great visual spectacles, as you say, is through movies. So, at some degree, we have to acknowledge that you know, movies. One of the unique things they can do is deliver us to these these engaging, rich visual spectacles that we can get through no other medium. And so, at that level, sometimes where story is very important, I agree for almost all types of movie telling the only thing for me that can set story aside and say it's okay is when you can achieve this level of visual spectacle and this level of visual achievement uh i mean again i can remember coming out of this movie and to dustin commenting how this is one of the first movies where i almost couldn't tell and almost didn't believe that the the, the wide shots the backgrounds were actually computer animated i i believe they'd sort of maybe matted in actual environments to the cg characters so you know the some point these are a visual medium and at this level i think it ex it excels in that category for what that medium aims to provide yeah definitely uh you know what and i'm just going to go ahead and move on to my number three film of the year because guess what it is avatar <laughs> uh, <laughs> interesting it's high yeah interesting interesting enough actually did not expect that at all uh but, but here let me say this in defense of avatar and i think todd i i totally totally agree you know this is a visual spectacle it's it's one of the most beautiful films i think you will see you have to see in 3d because i really 
even though there are some great 3D films this year, and I would actually say, you know, films like Coraline, you know, were also beautifully done in 3D, and that was done at the beginning of this, of uh, 2009. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's simply spectacular. Like, there's not a frame in this movie that is not just a joy to look at and to drink in, you know, just the colors, the the way the way the film is shot, you know, I mean, you have to give a lot of credit to the way James Cameron directs this film, but, you know, he actually does set up these these beautiful epic shots. Uh, he does a great job, I think, think of building out the world and making it feel lived in, making it feel real and not just, you know, like a selective series of, you know, one or two things. Uh, you you almost believe that you know Pandora is this real place that you could go and visit. You know, and part of almost that almost believe. Have you been paying attention to the news headlines? I've read that there are people who are actually are being diagnosed with depression because they cannot go visit the planet of Pandora. <laughs> they are that thoroughly convinced of its existence. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, I think both from you know the artistic side, the graphic side, the the way they make this look so real using the technology, uh, the 3D technology, and just the way that that Cameron is so you know, goes down to such minute detail from everything of just, you know, like adding, you know, flakes of dust in the air to little little bugs in the air to really make the, the world feel real. Like, you have to give a lot of credit to the the love and detail and attention that comes out of James Cameron's brain. I mean, it's it really is a sight to behold. But, you know, a lot of people are saying, and, and I agree partly that, you know, the biggest problem with Avatar is it does have sort of, you know, mediocre characters and mediocre story. Uh, and in fact, I actually wrote a a a, a review or a sort of article about why this film maybe maybe makes a point for for having you know just presentation over the the story and premise and and why that can make a film just as good as a film with a great story. But you know, as I've thought about this film over, over time, as I've heard some of the more some of the more arguments, I actually don't think that the story is the the problem in this film. I actually think it's a it's not it's you know not just even a decent story i think it's a pretty good story and i would argue it's almost the same story as district 9 like if you think about it it's a guy who starts off on one side uh, who's you know who's clearly clearly for the other people then gets thrown into the situation where he has to join the people he hates and then by the end of the film he's fighting for the people that he hates it's it's almost the exact same story of district 9 clearly they're told in completely different ways and i'd say the story in avatar is maybe told in a way that's a bit more approachable to to more people, but it's it's really is it's that baseline story. And I think if you look at a lot of the great films, like Star Wars, like if you just strip away everything from those films, like the story themselves are not very compelling. But it's you know it's the way the story is told. And I actually I actually totally disagree in saying that the actors aren't interesting in this film. I think Sam Worthington pl- plays almost the perfect blank slate character of someone who you can really believe is getting pulled into this as almost like a, a Joe Everyman, and into the sense that you can really, I think, put yourself into that character, and he actually does do a good job of being that blank slate. And I think Zoe Saldana in this film is spectacular. I actually think it's one of the best performances of the year. She really plays out her role well. I think you believe the the love that develops between between this, this her character, Natiri, and uh, the character that Sam Worthington plays, uh, Jake Sully. So I, I would actually argue that there are there are a lot of great performances. I actually think the story in itself is is a good story. I think what really detracts from it is there's a there's a couple couple characters who are just really two dimensional and a bit of dialogue that is is a little stilted, and that's a bit unfortunate. I think I think uh, the the character who basically plays the the evil capitalist is incredibly two dimensional, and I I think he's he does bring the film down a bit. And uh, I almost think Sigourney Weaver's character is a little unnecessary, though. 
she does serve her purpose. Uh, well, I think the the most the most critical. I mean, in terms of characters, clearly, as you said, the capitalist um, character who plays the sort of typical business tyrant of the of the planet, very one dimensional, very much could have been a a much more developed character, and then the main. Uh, antagonist, the general, the, the I, guy who's basically guns blazing. I'm going to dis- I, mean, I think he was deeper, but I think he was still very cliche. I, and I think I, that's for me where I it think, was a bit here's here's, here's what I'm going to say. I don't think he was cliche. I think he was archetypical. I think he represented the archetypical, you know, industrial military complex. I mean, clearly he had industry on one side with this capitalist, and he had he had the military on this side with uh, the the general playing a. What was his name? Uh, uh, Colonel Miles Quaritch, and I actually think Stephen Lang did a great job with that. And despite a couple, a couple, I think uh, dialogue choices that were unfortunate, like "You're not in Kansas anymore." It's like, well, duh, I'm not in Kansas anymore. I'm on a freaking alien planet. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. the things he does—it's well, a very. It's a, you have to agree. It's a very fine line be- between cliche and archetypical. I mean, it's 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 it just depends. Well, I think almost on interpretation. Well, of here's the thing: is, I think I think the character that Giovanni Ribisi plays, who is the the capitalist, is cliche because he, uh, like, he's just not believable in some sense. Like, you don't believe his motivation. Like, you don't believe that he's just this you know guy who doesn't care about anything. Whereas you can totally believe I think Stephen Lang's character as the archetype of the character who's you know it's his job to to you know do his military service and just almost I'd say like Jeremy Renner in the Hurt Locker. He's addicted to the thrill of combat and battle, and anything that gives him a chance to do that, he'll do it. And I totally believe that. And I actually think he does. He has some of the best scenes in this movie. In fact, one of my favorite scenes in Avatar is when. Uh, the characters, uh, Jake Soley and some of the other characters are escaping away after they've been found out and broken free from prison. And he goes open, he like busts open this door and, you know, lets in this poisonous gas, you know, like tells everyone to put on their, their gas mask. He walks out holding his breath, pulls out a pistol and just takes, starts taking like shots with this, you know, this, this cool, mean look on his face. Take like finishes the entire clip before he like grabs a mask and like takes a breath after they've escaped, like that's that's an amazing sequence. Like I, I, I would pair that against any of the the sort of badass sequences of the year, and I I actually think he's a great character. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So, I think uh, again, Avatar completely worthy of of uh, the number three slot uh, on my list, and I again I would I would I would defend it that it has a. Not only great visuals, but I think a uh, a pretty decent story and some amazing characters as well. I would also just add one of only a few films for me that deserves to be in the the top box office as well as being a good movie. No, absolutely. Whether it deserves to be the the top grossing movie of all time, meh. yeah, I'll, I'll I'll give you that. But still, much more for me than Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen. Absolutely, <laughs> and thank goodness. <laughs> I'm glad this, somebody beat Michael Bay. Thank goodness Avatar came around, or that would have been the top grossing film of this year. <laughs> All right, cool stuff. All right, well, well, Scott, uh, let's go ahead and move on to the number two films of the year. Scott, what was your number two? Number two, yeah. All right. um, You know, predictable for me, the film released by this company ends up on my top whatever list every year. Um, But what can I say? They're all really good movies. So for a colorful presentation, for preposterously good humanization of the main characters <laughs> and for being approachable to every audience I can possibly imagine is the Peach Doctor Bob Peterson Pixar film up. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that's, that is a worthy choice. Uh, 
let me tell you. I mean, do you do you agree with? I think, I think both me and Todd said that. We, you know, we we felt this movie's had sort of you know at least third act issues. Uh, uh, and that's actually why it didn't end up on my top five list. But why why did you feel that this this was worthy enough to be the second film of the year? Uh, even though I know you've said this is not your favorite of the Pixar films. It's not my favorite of the Pixar films, although I certainly think it is very good. Um, I watched Wally again after screening Up, and Wally still takes the cake for me for a lot of reasons. Um, but, um, and, and maybe maybe it is just perhaps how it speaks to me in a particular way. Um, but the sort of the point of the film Up, or the theme of the film, if you will, is about. Um, you know, life itself is the adventure, and you don't have to go on to start living. Um, and that the meaning is right there. There's the old expression, what is it? Uh, the nectar is the journey, or something like that. Um, that's very much the theme, very much the message of this film. Um, something that was particularly appealing to me at the time that up sort of entered my world, and uh, a very important theme to me personally. And I think Up presents it just about as well as any piece of cinema I've ever seen or any other piece of literature for that matter. Um, you know, all the way back from the pre-Socratics to modern philosophers. I, I don't know if any of them can really get into the idea that living essentially is the best way to live um, quite as well as Up does. Hmm. So for that brilliant presentation of that one particular theme, and like I said, some astounding humanization be it of human characters in this film or, or even non-human characters in this film, I have to salute up. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I don't think there's... I I would definitely not not disagree with uh, putting this on the top, top five. I wish it could have been on my top five, but there's just so many other good films. <laughs> uh, all right. Todd, what was your second best film of 2009? Number two, number two and number one for me, I will say, are almost virtually tied, in my opinion. But they are of two very different types of movie. Well, I think I know what so one I, of them is, but let's see which one goes which or in which place. <laughs> and this is really tough. I mean, it very really is very hard for me to, to give one of these over the other. Uh, however, for me, this movie was one of the most entertaining movies of the year. Certainly, one of the most surprising successes of 2009. And has, for me, uh, uh, was really one of the, I don't know, it's just, I, I have to say, the Hangover for me, yep. the Hangover was number two movie. Either way, it's, you gotta be super smart to count cards, buddy, okay? Oh, really? It's not easy. Okay, well, maybe we should tell that to Rain Man, because he practically bankrupt a casino, and he was a retard. Can I ask you a question? Do you know if the hotel's pager-friendly? What do you mean? I'm not getting a SIG on my beeper. I'm not sure. Is there a payphone bank? Bunch of payphones? Business. Um, there's a phone in your room. That'll work. Can I ask you another question? Sure. You probably get this a lot. This isn't the real Caesar's Palace, is it? What do you mean? Did, um... Did Caesar live here? Um, no. I don't think so. <laughs> this movie was an outstanding comedy. In terms of rewatchability, this is probably one of the movies I will rewatch the most often going forward forever. I mean, compared to any of these other movies, which I may forget about, The Hangover for me will be like Dumb and Dumber was however many years ago. It's just one you do when you're looking for a good laugh. Um, you know, some of the humor is crude, yes, but this was a reinvention for me, or a revival, if nothing else, of the the really well-done comedy. I mean, they're kind of, 
the bro comedy. I don't know. I don't know how to put this. For me, this movie <laughs> captured what 2009 needed, which was something to break up all the sci-fi and the epic movies, was something that was lighthearted, fun, but well done. And, and obviously, it, it surprised a lot of people. I mean, it's incredible to me that the hangover of all movies managed to make it in the top 10 of the uh, highest grossing films of 2009 True. on top of it all. Uh, but this movie for me was very entertaining, and I would highly recommend it. And it just is almost no question. It makes my number one or two spot. In this case, I gave it to number two. Yep. I, I, you know what? I, Hangover did not make my list, though I guarantee you it was actually one of those ones that was fighting for that, that number five slot. Uh, I do agree. I think this is this is by far the best comedy of the year. There's no no doubt about that. Uh, I, I'd say coming in very close. Second is Zombieland, which is an, another great comedy. But uh, yeah, Hangover, I, I, I think I agree with you. I think this is going to be one of those films that, like Dumb and Dumber, like some of the great comedies of the past, is going to transcend its year. Like I think uh, comedies have a really short shelf life in that you know they're really funny that one year, but then the next year you know a bunch of other comedies come out and we forget about them. Uh, Hangover is not going to be one of those films. I think it's going to be one of those films that that we remember as as being like one of the best dude comedies of all time. And uh, you know, launched the I think the career for Zach Galifianakis. We've you know he's been in tons of films since this. Uh, right. I I really look forward to to see uh you know what these guys do in the future. I can't. I'm not sure what I feel about the the concept of a Hangover Two, even though it is in production right now. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, what can I say? Absolutely hilarious film. Like this is this is one of those like films that people will quote for for years to come. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I agree with you. I don't know that I'm particularly keen on seeing a Hangover Two. Uh, I'd almost like rather let this one just kind of live in its glory without being tainted by what's like to be a sequel but i mean it, for, i think this you know a few years ago we were dealing with that kind of old school will ferrell ty- ty- type comedy you know we'd see those all the sure. time and i'm hoping that the hangovers kind of launched this new generation of comedies which is a little bit more serious a little bit more uh perhaps dark but at the same time funny and and a little bit sharper writing you know not just stupid kind of comedies um, and, and that's my hope that this movie is inspired, certainly because it's given these guys a lot of credibility and we've seen them in a lot of uh, new projects. And, uh, I, you know, I, I say, I don't want to see hangover Two, but at the same time, you, you kind of want to <laughs> yeah. recapture yeah, that, no, I, that I, fun. I, 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 that, I don't know. You know, I agree. I fear that they're going to ruin the amazing thing that the hangover was, but, uh, yeah, and what is it? Ken is I don't know. It's Ken Jeong or Ken Jong, the Mr. Chow character, <laughs> who's now also a member of the cast of Community it and hilarious in Community. It seems like almost every other comedy uh, yeah. in 2009. I mean, this is just another one of those performances where he's just really funny. And for whatever reason, this was his breakout year. I mean, he's been that's true everywhere. A regular part of the Community television show where he's equally funny there. So uh, it's a real joy to kind of see these funny characters and see him in a lot of places. And this is a sort of a a uh, a prime example of how these guys are funny together. Uh, absolutely. Uh, again, definitely, definitely the best comedy of the year. My, the reason why it didn't make my top five is I actually do feel, unfortunately, that the hangover sort of goes for the shotgun approach of comedy and that they just, they throw a lot out there and they hope that most of it hits. But because they do throw a lot out there, there are, there's some pretty noticeable misses. And like when I saw this in theaters, like there were a couple jokes that just didn't land at all. You know, the, the crowd was a little, a little, silent during some of the some of the times and unfortunately i think that's sort of mostly zach galifianakis's fault because that kind of is his style of comedy and some of those things hit really well and some of them don't but in general i think you know 95 percent of the jokes in this film really hit well and it's as is definitely it's is a, a film that's a joy to watch over and over again 
Agreed. Uh, Scott, did you did you end up seeing The Hangover this year? I think it's sitting in one of my Netflix queues, but it's didn't get close enough to the top to get to me by the time we, uh, by the time this cast went to pod. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, de- definitely, definitely watch this uh, amazing, amazing comedy. All right, we'll go on to my number two film of the year. And it's a film we've already mentioned, but this is a film I think is is almost. Almost flawless. Like, like I was trying to think of things I didn't like about the film, and I had a hard time thinking of anything, which is why, like, well, that that has to make make it at least number one and number two. And that film is Up in the Air by Jason Reitman. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his of his uh, of his previous work. Thank you for smoking. I wasn't a huge fan of Juno, though I did like it. Uh, but there's what some... about Arrested Development? I uh, actually have not watched a lot of Arrested Development, though I've heard it is very good. I. Uh, I, uh, what can I say? This is such an amazing film. Uh, when I went, when I went to the movie theaters, like walking out of this film, I had one of those moments of like, this is why I love cinema. And anytime I have the moment, I realize that you know this must have been one of the great films of the year. Uh, it's it's just so well put together without having to do much. And when you, you look at the other things on my list, like you know Star Trek, Avatar, District Nine, there's a lot that's put in. You know, a lot of posts that's put into this film. Whereas I feel like most of what you know up in the air was done was just you know perfect classic filmmaking and the fact that Jason Raymond was able to in a year you know where technology and 3D was such the big focus to say you know you know what I can still make an amazing film without having to be crazy without having to be ridiculous and it it will work you'll it's it's enjoyable it's watchable and then I can even I can even add you know on top of that I can it's not just enjoyable but it it says something and there's you know there is a lot of you know deepness to this film it's it's a meaty film at its core and yet it's so light on the other side and it's yeah it's it's just wonderful and I I think Scott you you said you know this was a very relevant film and it really is i mean a lot of this film deals with in fact this was a choice by jason raymond to actually rewrite the story to have this character deal with uh or be a man who goes around and fires people and to rewrite it in the the context of the current economic crisis and it it just hits so perfectly well on sort of capturing i think the zeitgeist of 2009 of just sort of the the political and economic economic situation we're in and uh and yet it does that in a way that's not incredibly depressing and yet is still very true and still i think i think really really rings well and yet it you know it intersperses that with a lot of good light comedy so you you do get again the 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 medicine with the ice cream and it's yeah it's, it's just a wonderful film and i again I, I could watch i could watch this film over and over again i will watch it over and over again it's it's uh again it's not it's probably not you know a film i would watch as with as much brevity as i would watch star trek but but still uh just just a, a joy of a film. And my number two of the year. Okie doke. We have gotten down to the number ones. The films that we all thought were, you know, hands down, best films of the year. Mr. Johnsgaard, with a drum roll. What is your number one film of the year? For preposterously engaging dialogue in languages I don't understand for preposterously engaging character-driven acting and for preposterously over-the-top filmmaking in all quarters, all levels, and all kinds, it is Mr. Q. Tarantino's Inglorious Boss Terrans. Indeed, indeed. So why... I mean, oh, right, right, go, any go film that yeah. starts with Once Upon a Time in Nazi-occupied France <laughs> is just going to be a perfect sell for me. 
I mean, I, I mean it, it, it's almost hard for me to get into all the reasons I like this film. Um, you know, there are scenes in this film that I want to cut out when I get my hands on the Blu-ray and play them over and over and over again and, like, analyze them until I filled up multiple notebooks just trying to figure out why exactly they were. I mean, just, just read through the list of character names in this film. It's like Aldo Rain, Hans Lanta, Donny Donowitz, you know, von Hammersmark, Sola, Stieglitz, Udovich, Pierre Lapadi, you know. That already sounds like a sweet-ass movie in the first place. <laughs> now all you have to do is make these characters say something, and it's a sell. Yep. Um, uh, there's nothing like a historical reimagining combined with all the pompous craziness of Quentin Tarantino to turn into a movie that's an absolutely unstoppably engaging romp through cinematic counter-history. And that's exactly what this film is. The technical details are pretty much spot on flawless. I really can't complain about the acting. I mean, there might be a few points where you're like, oh, it's a little soggy here. It's a little soggy there. But I, I, you can't pull out any one act of this film and be like, oh, this is lousy. That's lousy. I mean, like every Tarantino film, it waxes and it wanes. But ultimately, it kicks you in face. Exactly what Bastards does to me. <laughs> so, so why would you say... I mean, uh, clearly there are tons of things to love about Inglourious Bastards, but I say there are tons of things to love about all the movies that, that I think we've named tonight. Why why was this so so obviously, or was it so obviously in your mind, the number one film of the year? Out of all the films I've seen this year, there was no film that I said the day after seeing it, I'll go see that again right now. Then actually did so, and after screening it for the second time said, I'll go see that again tomorrow. Um, I, I, I cannot get enough of Inglorious Bastards. It's maybe it's the fact that, I mean, just to, to sort of give a demonstration of how spot on these performances are, in my opinion, try watching it in either if you've got a DVD, turning off the subtitles, or if you have a, <clears throat> a uh, shall we say, torrent flicks instant watch, <laughs> um, covering up that part of the screen using a cropper with your hand or something like that, and just watch for for like 10 minutes even if you don't speak the relevant languages and don't really haven't watched the original film enough times to remember sort of what was being said it still works perfectly i mean you can almost get it that's how spot on the performances are that even if there's a complete language barrier there you can almost taste the tension or the humor or the you know whatever the emotion is in the scene the annoyance between you know the mademoiselle and the the, the German army private or something like that, the, you know, between this Hauptsturmführer and that Hauptsturmführer. Um, brilliant, tangible, cinematic tension, movement, and character-driven emotions in every, every scene, even if you want to complain about bits and pieces of it. Overall, I think it's, it's just a complete, you know, it's a complete Beruda. It's going to smack you in the face with a baseball bat. <laughs> what? I think there's much more we can say about that. Scott's number one film of the year, Inglorious Bastards. Todd? And business is, is a booming. <laughs> All right, Todd. What, <laughs> now we're going on to you, and I'm almost positive I know what this film is. But what is your number one film of 2009? Well, if you've been paying attention to this podcast, I, I hope it's, it's relatively obvious. I've, I've tipped my <laughs> hand earlier. Uh, so, so building up as a recap, my five was *Inglorious Bastards*, four up, three *Avatar*, two *The Hangover*. My number one film of 2009 clearly then has to be 
Star Trek by J.J. <laughs> Abrams. Yep. Uh, a film you've already commented on, and I've already provided some commentary on, uh, but to provide my counter perspective to, to what you put out there, I mean, you, you highlighted the, the errors in your opinion were uh, that the movie kind of falls apart in some of the, the later portions of the movie and, where the intro is. And, and let, let me well say, done. I don't think it falls apart. It's just I think there are noticeable points where I'm pulled out of the movie because of plot choices. And not the overarching plot, but just like minor things like why did you throw the first officer off the bridge onto a snow planet when he's the first officer <laughs> for, like, arguing. It's fair, but at the same time, it's consistent with the Star Trek universe. I mean, if you've watched any amount of Star Trek, the captain and the first officer and the medical officer, it's like all the key people always travel together down to the planet to do something. I mean, it's just, it, it never made sense ever in Star no, no, Trek, I, but no, that's I, the way Star Trek is done. No, I agree, but when you kick off your first officer for yelling at you and you maroon him on a planet, that was, well... Either way. <laughs> Again, so the, the logic, I mean, it, I suppose you get in some trouble if you spend a lot of time trying to build very, you know, logical arguments out of Star Trek. Now, let's be about fair. This is Star Trek. This is a, you know, a completely fictional time and universe. Sure. Absolutely agree. Uh, tried to be closely related to our own, obviously. But for me, this film gets number one because it fits all of my criteria to a T and it has another special feature. Uh, that is, it's extremely watchable. I would obviously rewatch this movie. Uh, my wife, I took my wife to see this movie. She enjoyed this movie. You already mentioned that, that our parents enjoyed this movie. Any movie that, I mean, well, first of all, any movie that my wife enjoys that I enjoy also is incredible. Yep. But the fact it's a Star Trek movie <laughs> that normal people enjoyed, you have to say that's an achievement of, of great, of, of epic sort of scale to get that many people to enjoy and admit to enjoying a Star Trek franchise. And for me, where this movie really goes over the top and where it really earns my number one billing, and frankly, the reason it was my number one and Hangover was number two, is because this, for me, is the revitalization of a franchise. True. I mean, Star Trek, for all intents and purposes, had kind of drug on and almost gone to the point of dying and then kind of kicking itself no, out. It, it was it, down it, with some of the... It had gone to the point of dead. <laughs> I mean, it was Trust dead, me. but it was still kind of like <laughs> kicking itself while dead. Like, it was almost, I mean, it was like dying a a multiple painful death with some of those movies that were being done which, by the TNG crew. Including um, the, the last movie, which we will not speak of. <laughs> which we will not speak, speak the name of. <laughs> so in, in that sense, for me, this movie goes beyond itself because unlike The Hangover, where I really enjoyed it, but I don't necessarily want to see another one, Star Trek, I read, and I really do want to see another one. I want to see these actors and this crew come and make another one of these movies. I think they have a great chemistry. I think it was well done. And I would be excited for seeing another one of these movies because I really think it could be well done. I think it's one of the few movies with the uh, the kind of chemistry that can actually make an entertaining sequel, especially with J.J. Abrams uh, at the helm. So for that, on top of everything else, it earns my number one billing and makes my rounds out my top five in my best movie of 2009. No, I, I, I definitely think it's that's a a, a worthy choice. I mean, uh, uh, even though it it uh, it only made number five on my list, it's again, like you said, what what a great film, just like across the board, uh, you know, of of being approachable to everyone who watches it, something that you can watch with your friends, and it's also an amazing, awesome Star Trek movie. And I also also think you made a good point that of all the films on my list, this is the film that I am definitely looking forward most to the sequel. Like, bring it on. Like, I think I. I think I heard that they said the sequel is in the slate for 2012, and that made me sad because I want to see another Star Trek film next year. <laughs> like, like bring it on! I want right. more of this. This is absolutely amazing. And and for for just a brief little bit of insight, I think the reason why this film did so well 
is the approach they took to to making this film. They didn't just have, you know, Rick Berman, the sort of, you know, the guy who's owned the Star Trek franchise essentially for the longest time, and a bunch of former Star Trekies who are all in love with Star Trek come and make this film. They took J.J. Abrams, who was kind of a, you know, I'm familiar with Star Trek and I liked it, but it was not my favorite show. They took uh, the, the two writers, uh, Roberto Orsi, who was like the Star Trek nut, and then Alex Kurtzman, who barely knew anything about Star Trek. And those three came together. So, you know, a guy who was, who was the, the Star Trek, dedicated Star Trek nerd, uh, a guy who kind of knows Star Trek but and likes it but doesn't know a ton about it, and a guy who has, knows nothing about it, and combining that effort into well, let's make a film that appeals to you know the Star Trek fan, that appeals to the I've never seen Star Trek before, and appeals to the casual Star Trek fan, and by constantly making that front of mind the entire film, I really do think they they accomplished that. They came up with a film that I think works on every single level, you know, down from the I don't know what Star Trek is to the you know I've watched every single episode of Star Trek multiple times. Which I have. (laughs) Any film that can hit that many audiences and be successful at that many levels, I think, has achieved something pretty spectacular. I mean, very few films, very few of anything in life can be all things to all people. And Star Trek simultaneously managed to be pleasing to the fans of the franchise while being entertaining to the non-fans. And and frankly, that's almost an, an impossible achievement with Star Trek. So I think that, for me, gives it the bonus points it needs to earn number one on my list. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm actually kind of sad that Abrams doesn't get a doesn't get a, a nomination for Best Director for this. Because, I mean, really, what what a feat to make a Star Trek film that both Trekkies love and non-Trekkies love. That's that's There's got to be some kind of an award for that. <laughs> At least a fun award. Right. Like some sort of achievement. <laughs> like, way to go. <laughs> achievement unlocked. It's everywhere. would love to give you didn't money. Didn't piss people off and didn't piss people off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Great. Now, how would JJ hey, Abrams? How would you like to work on World Peace or something? Clearly, you have some sort of magical. <laughs> Maybe touch you got it somehow. <laughs> yeah. When you're done doing that lost thing, and you know, when, when movies stop working for you, we've got this, you know, World Peace thing we want you to solve. <laughs> well, you know, I just want to make sure it's it's cool. You know, it's just got to be cool all the time. <laughs> yeah. Just say World Peace by JJ Abrams. That, that'll bring enough people to the table. Okay, So I am curious, though. Uh, there's one more number one on this table, and I'm curious to hear what it is. All right. Well, let's just recount things. So my number five was Star Trek. Number four was District 9. Number three was Avatar. Number two, Up in the Air. My number one. Well, first of all, let me tell you what it's not. <laughs> my number one movie of the year is not The Brothers Bloom. My number one movie is not 500 Days of Summer, even though... Uh, my favorite, You're obsessed with Deschanel. My favorite romantic film of the year, and I definitely had to, to tone down the fact that, that, that I was in love with Zoe Deschanel the entire film. My number I one film... I feel like cheating on the format. <laughs> <laughs> my number one film of 2009 is the only film that was so good that the director felt it was okay in the last shot of the film to stare into the screen and say, you know what? I think this may have been my masterpiece. And he was right. Uh, Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> I see. What I, to me, this film, this film hits everything that I need personally for a film. It is engaging. Uh, it has you know tremendous actors, tremendous story. There is so much depth in this film that you can just dissect it and find all those fun things. And yet, it is also something I think appeals to a, a lot of non-film people just for the some of the ridiculousness 
of the character performances and yet and performances that are so true like Scott like Scott said that even though it's all done in different languages it can you can you can tell the emotions that are going on you can follow the scenes just through these spectacular performances uh you know Quentin Tarantino is you know as pretentious as the man is the man loves film and i think his his love and appreciation for film and for film history just pours out in this film and you know all the things that he's learned from watching you know great spaghetti westerns and and great films of the past just are put into this film and crafted in a way that I think is is almost almost perfect. Uh, every time I watch this film, I just I end with this you know this excited excited feeling uh, that you know I've just watched something that is spectacular and uh, it really is. I think this is the film that Quentin Tarantino was born to make, and I I honestly think this is probably going to be his his best film of, that he ever makes, and I don't know quite how he's gonna going to uh, live up to this. But yeah, a spectacular film. Uh, I, what what can I say? Now, what's what's no not much because we've said a lot. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that by you picking Inglorious Bastards as your number one, that becomes the only film she makes all three of our lists. Is it? That, I believe. I believe it is. Inglorious Bastards made my number five. Made Scott's number one. I believe, right, Scott? That's correct. Um, made your number one, and everything else I think ends up on two of our lists, but not all three. Interesting. So. So one of the things that we wanted to do is coming out of this, we wanted to name a a best film of the year consensus between all three of us and sort of the Daily Monotony's best film of the year. And yeah, I, it almost sounds like it's got to be Inglorious Bastards. Uh, what do you guys I mean, think? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it really depends whether or not we want to call it best film of the year or film of the year. Because film of the year implies that it might be recognized for something other than merely its bestage. Uh, for for me, the choice would fall down between Inglorious Bastards for being brilliant and Avatar for being groundbreaking. Let's let's say best film of the year. <laughs> but but did I'm Avatar afraid, make your list? Uh, I don't remember Avatar on luck. your list. Huh? I don't remember Avatar. No, Avatar was not not, not on my list. list. No. So yeah, sure. So, Avatar may have had more of an achievement, and certainly I think you know the Golden Globes clearly felt it was film of the year, but. I think if we have to pick a dailymonotony.com best film Monotonous of 2009, uh, it got to be Inglorious Bastards. You guys, do you guys disagree? I mean, certainly it's not my top film because I, I, I had other things for other reasons that I thought were more rewatchable, more entertaining. But in terms of coming to a consensus, it made my top five. And it's the only film that makes my top five with your top five. And I certainly agree for all of the aspects that, that we've talked about why it deserves to be recognizes one of the best films of 2009 uh, i mean I, I would i would say that it's hard to say the best in terms of overall because it's not the most um, enjoyable by the broadest audience i mean clearly there's audiences that this film just will not appeal to and i could think of probably a lot of audiences in fact that this film will not appeal to by nothing else it's violence alone said if you can get past that and be willing to say it's not necessarily doesn't have to be the most broadly appealing best film of 2009 i would be wholeheartedly willing to agree that this is definitely one of the best if not the best films in terms of the being both for people who like to study and make films you know films for filmies or films for for movie buffs uh, to be perhaps a little bit more eloquent and films for people that just want to be entertained i think this film hit that sweet spot perhaps not by hitting the broadest audience but certainly did hit that sweet spot sure definitely uh 
Yeah, and, and you know, so I, I, I will I will be willing to cast my vote on that. I'm not conceding my Star Trek is my number one, but I will be willing to cast my vote certainly as the collective that Glorious Bastards is one of the best films. You know, and, and definitely if we want you know any you come, people to come away with anything is you know the best film of the year is the film that you think is the best of the year. It's not it's not necessarily what what we say. It's not necessarily what the Oscars say. It's you know it's the film that you enjoy the most and the film that you think you're gonna rewatch the most or you get the most entertainment value out of whatever that means for you. Whether it means you know being being moved or being question, you know, having your principles questioned by it, or you know, forcing you to think about something in a new way, or just having pure raw entertainment, or both. Uh, but yeah, I think I think it works almost almost perfectly that uh, that uh, the best best film of the year for DailyMonotony.com consensus between our three reviewers is Inglorious Bastards. Ooh, that's a bingo. <laughs> Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo. You just say bingo. Bingo! How fun! If you haven't seen it, that means you have to see it now. If it's our number one, you Ex- have exactly to see right. It. <laughs> Clearly, there were a lot of films that that can't make this list. Uh, but we we've gone about an hour and thirty minutes now, so uh, I'm go- gonna go ahead and wrap up things, and then we'll stay on a little bit afterwards and and have a bit of a bonus episode where we talk about some of our runners up <laughs> that. The other reviewers were not so eloquent to sneak into their lists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mr. Host. <laughs> and uh, so, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, as always, come back to DailyMonotony.com as often as you can. Uh, we're Right now, I'm doing a segment on sort of the best of 2009, going through a bunch of different categories for both film. And then uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to do the same thing for games. Uh, leave a comment if you agree, if you disagree. Uh, let me know what was your favorite uh, your favorite films and your favorite ga- games of uh, 2009. Uh, and yeah, uh, thanks for joining us uh, in Glorious Bastards. Best film for DailyMonotony.com 2009. <laughs>